Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney and I want you to know, Eric, you have my full undivided attention. I am definitely not glancing down at my phone while we podcast. <laughs> good, good. Uh, you, you know, several months ago when uh, when one of the alphabet groups was proposing that judges score fights from home during the pandemic, you noted the potential problem of judges being distracted, whereas I was more open to the idea. And I'm not sure whose case this helps or hurts, uh, the case of the judge glancing down at what might have been a phone. You know, on, on the one hand, Yes, apparently some judges will let themselves be distracted and allowing them to judge remotely could be a complete disaster. On the other hand, now we have to wonder how much worse could it be than what goes on when judges are ringside? <laughs> Seriously. Um, <clears throat> if you don't know what we're talking about, this relates to uh, a screenshot of a judge ringside in England during the Miguel Vasquez, Lewis Ritson bow on Saturday. Uh, Ritson won by what is, I think, universally regarded by those who saw it as a larcenous decision. And the screenshot is by one of those judges apparently glancing at his cell phone while ringside, which would be just extraordinarily <laughs> egregious. Um, right. There's been a bit of pushback that I've seen. It might not actually be a phone. He might be glancing at something else. He might be glancing at his scorecard, which would raise a whole other bunch of other issues. Um, <laughs> right. So, you know, there's that caveat there. And, and I should actually also offer one other caveat uh, or correction, I should say, actually. Um, it is technically true to say that I am not glancing at my phone while we do that. And that's basically only because I'm fully staring at it <laughs> and, and playing World of Warcraft ah. right now. And, and in fact, I should, while we're, you know, while we've got a truth circle going here, I should point out that, in fact, I do that every week during the <laughs> podcast, which may explain why you're about 200 points ahead in our picks contest. <laughs> right. Well, you're much better at multitasking than, than <laughs> I am. I am one of those people who, while we're podcasting, if someone sends me a text message, I try not to even look at my phone because I know it'll break my train of thought and I'll be utterly right. useless. But if, if that was a phone that the judge uh, had, and I much prefer to think it was a phone just because it's a better story than him glancing at a scorecard. <laughs> but if it was a, a phone, you know, we've been led to believe teenagers are the ones we have to worry about right. staring at their screens. Turns out it's actually 67-year-old British men that we have to worry about. <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right. This week on the podcast, we are quite thrilled to welcome the one and only Joe Goosen. Uh, as one of his fighters, welterweight contender Sergei Lipinets is headlining a Showtime triple header this Saturday, October 24th. We will talk to Joe about Sergei's preparation for a fight that got delayed by two weeks, as well as dealing with a late change in opponents. And Eric and I will preview the whole card and make our predictions after I finish this game of World of Warcraft. <laughs> um, but before we get to all of that, uh, let's talk about this past Saturday night's uh, lightweight championship fight in which Teofimo Lopez rose to the challenge and unseated the man Eric and I both had considered the pound-for-pound pound best fighter in the world, Vasily Lamachenko. Yeah, you know, I haven't seen Lopez crowing that he shook up the world like Muhammad Ali, uh, but he definitely shook up the pound-for-pound pound rankings, and, and we'll talk about that. Uh, in the MGM Grand Bubble in Las Vegas, we saw a fight in two halves. The first half, Lopez was outboxing Lomachenko, and Lomachenko, for reasons we will try to assess, just wasn't throwing enough punches. And the second half, Lomachenko rallied. Lopez began to tire a bit in rounds 10 and particularly 11. The fight arguably drew close. 
and then Lopez dug down and pulled out a magnificent 12th round, even appearing to hurt Lomachenko in the final minute to remove all doubt, at least for me. I gave Lomachenko rounds 7, 8, 10, and 11, and all the rest I gave to Lopez. I had it 116-112 for Lopez, which was the same score handed in by Tim Cheatham, although not the exact same round by round as him. While the nearly infallible Steve Weisfeld had it 117-111, pretty close to my score and Cheatham's score, and Julie Letterman handed in this week's WTF bubble scorecard, 119-109. Kieran, how did you score it? And focusing on the first half of the fight, what was up with Lomachenko's slow start? Should we be scratching our heads about him or, or giving credit to Lopez? Uh, so I had the same score as you, 116-112, but unlike you, I actually did have the exact same scorecard as Tim Cheatham. Okay. Uh, I had rounds 1-7 to seven for Lopez, 8-11 to 11 for Lomachenko, and then, then the 12th for Lopez. Um, yeah, it was a bit of a puzzling performance from Lomachenko, and a couple of things do come to mind. Um, you know, we talked last week about how Lomachenko had been like just far less effective at 135, and it's possible that was a factor too, you know, if you're not entirely comfortable at the weight, you're somebody who really relies on your movement, carrying those extra few pounds can be a factor, as can be the heaviness of the punches coming back at you. But if you accept Slomachenko's win over a smaller Guillermo Rigondo, then you need to accept this loss. And, you know, the problem we're talking about that is it sounds like you're making excuses for Lomachenko and not giving praise to Lopez. And honestly, I think the primary reason that a silly Lomachenko looks so lost and was so inactive over those first six or seven rounds was Teofimo Lopez. Mm -hmm. um, I think that... Lomachenko suspected, and to be fair, so did many of us, Those, even when we said Lopez has a shot and this is how he has a shot, probably expected Lopez to come firing out of the blocks a lot more earlier, opening up a lot more earlier, um, and figuring that Lopez's doing so would provide the openings and the opportunity for, for, for Lomachenko to sort of counter and, and then pivot and move, but... Lopez didn't do that. He he fought within himself, um, you know, firing straight punches um, and firing them repeatedly and, and, and tapping Lomachenko to the body, um, using that jab very effectively, just not giving Lomachenko the space to counter. And, and he kept Lomachenko in front of him. And I'm not sure that, you know, Lomachenko so much chose not to pivot and punch early as much as Lopez didn't let him. You know, I think... Lomachenko likes to be able to figure out and time his opponents, but Lopez was fainting a lot, which made it difficult for him to time him. And he was also doing these nice little subtle quarter turns to keep Lomachenko in front of him. And it's funny, we talked last week about the relative lack of experience of Lopez, but Lomachenko has very little experience of having to deal with someone who knows how to neutralize him, mm. of having to grit his teeth and suck it up and dig deep and go to a plan B and a plan C. He generally just waits until he's able to impose his plan A on his opponent. So this was new territory for him. And in Lopez, he had someone who was not just big and strong, which we knew, but also maybe smarter in the ring than we'd previously given him credit for, and certainly fast. Uh, yes. And he was just able to keep Lomachenko where he wanted him over the first half of that fight. He took away Lomachenko's best weapons over the first half of the fight. And, and by the time Lomachenko did finally figure him out and begin to make his moves, it was just too late. Yeah, yeah. It was, it, it was a really masterful game plan. I'm not sure who exactly in Team Lopez gets the credit for coming in with that 
boxing plan, as you said, boxing within himself the way he did. Uh, but certainly Teofimo Lopez gets the credit for the execution of the game plan. He really was doing it perfectly through the first half of the fight. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, as, as you sort of mentioned at the top, somewhere around the seventh or eighth round, as you said, you gave Lomachenko round seven, um, although none of the judges scored any rounds for him at all until the eighth. Lomachenko did indeed begin to turn it around. Um, so what adjustments did he make, do you think, um, to be able to close that gap? But also how important was it for if you will, the aesthetics surrounding Lopez's victory, that he did come out and clearly win that 12th round rather than kind of like limp across the finish line and give the impression that Lomachenko was just one round too short. Yeah, so on the latter question first, that that was huge. Uh, you know, the scores all would have favored Lopez regardless of what happened in the final round as long as he finished on his feet. But the narrative would have been totally different. It would have been more like the first Bernard Hopkins, Jermaine Taylor fight, where B-Hop was so totally in charge down the stretch that however you scored it, you felt a little shaky about Taylor being crowned the champ when it was over. The conversation today, if Lomachenko wins round 12, would have definitely included some... If this was a 15-round fight, Lomachenko beats him. We'd be yep. here. We'd be hearing that today for sure. Instead, Lopez comes away sparkling. There, there's no real dispute about who won. I know some people said they had it a draw. That's a, a bit of a reach to me. But even so, I didn't see anyone claiming that Lomachenko actually won the fight. A draw was the best anyone gave him. Um, and Lopez just looks so good in that 12th round. It really put an exclamation point on the performance. He needed that, not on the scorecards, but in terms of the narrative, he needed that round after the way the previous few rounds had gone. Um, but but the four or five rounds leading up to that, Lomachenko did fight damn well. He looked more or less like the Lomachenko we've grown accustomed to seeing. Um, in terms of the adjustments he made, Part of it was just willingness to take risks. You know, mm -hmm. at best, he was down five to one through six. Uh, he had to know he was way behind. He had to make a decision that if I'm going to have a chance at winning this fight, I'm going to have to get more aggressive, let my hands go and probably get hit. So, so that's the first part. The non-technical part is just the attitude adjustment and frankly, the desperation kicking in. Mm -hmm. um, as for what changed technically, it was mostly spacing. Lomachenko accepted that he couldn't beat this guy from the outside. No. You know, he could use his legs to stay out of danger, but he couldn't get any offensive business done if he was doing that. Lopez was a little too long and just as quick as Loma, so he had to step inside, and he did. He got like two inches closer to Lopez and started letting combinations go, uh, and he got countered, as he knew he would. Lopez was really trying to get him with the right uppercut, uh, although Lomachenko was mostly ready for it and, and, and picking that off for the most part. But it was simply using that exceptional Lomachenko footwork and darting in just a hair closer than he had been and then letting his hands go. Um, and, you know, there was both cause and effect with this part, but Lopez did get tired, uh, especially in the 11th. Uh, you know, partially that was because of Lomachenko stepping up the pressure. Uh uh, whatever the, the, the cause part of it, the effect, it, it allowed Lomachenko to then be that much more effective in that round, all of which makes the second win that Lopez found in the 12th that much more impressive. For those last three minutes, he somehow looked as fresh as he did in round one, and Lomachenko 
didn't have another gear that he could then go to to keep up with what Lopez was doing in the 12th round. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it says a lot about how difficult it is to fight Lomachenko that Lopez, who was fighting to, in many respects, the perfect fight against Vasily Lomachenko, was clearly tiring, as you said, toward the end. But I think yeah, the other thing, you know, we, we talk about like all fighters have to be confident. But it says a lot about Lopez's self-belief. From minute one, he legitimately thought he had the beating of this guy. Mm-hmm. Like from the from the moment where his dad started slagging him off in the hotel lobby that started this whole thing a couple of years ago. Right. From that moment, they really thought they had the beating of him. And and a lot of opponents have shrunk mm-hmm. inside themselves when when Vasilis turned it up. And like you said, in that twelfth round, Lopez didn't. Lopez was like, God damn it, I'm better than you and I'm gonna win this fight. And how dare you come at me like this? And I, I think that was very, very impressive. And it speaks a lot to – I don't think any of us have ever questioned the notion that Teofimo Lopez has self-belief. But I think it speaks a lot to that, the way that he just refused to let Lamachenko take a hold of the second half of that fight at the very end there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right, so, so let's talk pound for pound. Um, you don't fill out a list for ESPN anymore. I still do. So I've had to stop and think this through and send them updated rankings for the first time since February. Um, pound for pound isn't a thing where when you beat the man, you necessarily automatically become the man. Um, so I'm not putting Lopez at number one. But I do have to put him fairly high, and I have to put him above Lomachenko, obviously, even mm-hmm. if he doesn't have a deep pound-for-pound pound worthy track record yet. So my new list is Terrence Crawford at one, Canelo at two, Inoue at three. I put Lopez in at four, and then I have <laughs> Lomachenko right behind him at five, just above Errol Spence for me. I don't love having a number one who hasn't faced a strong opponent in a long time and a number two who has nothing scheduled, but we make some exceptions during a pandemic. Uh, Anything you disagree with in my rankings? Uh, Do do you expect people will drop Lomachenko further than I did? No, I mean, that sounds about right. I mean, I've long thought that, you know, Terrence Crawford was the best human being uh, (laughs) at at boxing. And, you know, it turns out that the alien Lomachenko does have some kryptonite after all. Um, and, and I don't have, I don't see any reason to take him out of that number one position. He is getting into a situation where he is really struggling to find good opposition, Terrence Crawford. And it doesn't look like that's going to change anytime in, in, in the future. And I can see the case of putting Canelo in at number one, given his, his recent track record. Um, I have a suspicion to answer like your your second question there. You know, like I think I talked about last week, it's felt to me that for a while that there's been a strong subset of observers who've never wanted to give Lomachenko credit and have presented those of us who have put him at number one. And I feel that there may be quite a few who use this as more of an opportunity to demote Lomachenko than necessarily to promote Lopez. Um, So I wouldn't be surprised if a few folks drop him quite low. In the same way that there were plenty who were, couldn't wait to drop Gennady Golovkin um, down that list. 
I also have a bit of a suspicion that some folks will put Errol Spence in that fourth spot. I think that's too high if they do do that. Uh, I'm much more inclined to agree with you. But I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. And particularly if he winds up, you know, with a good win over Danny Garcia later this year, it might cement him in that position. So that would be my only sort of sense of how others might do it is perhaps elevate Spence into that fourth position and look for an opportunity to drop Lomachenko lower. That, that would be my guess. But I... I would tend to agree with your list. Yeah, and we'll see some of those lists uh, coming out early this week. But uh, but yeah, with it, with it, with regard to Errol Spence, for me, it's kind of a let's wait and see. I have him at number six for now. As I said, if he beats Danny Garcia really impressively, he does have, I guess, you know, a longer track record than a guy like Teofimo Lopez. So I could jump him back up from six to four or something if he's coming off a great performance there. But uh, it's it's there's a bit of a sense of pound for pound number one being almost vacant at the moment. I mean, mm, you have to, you mm-hmm. have to put somebody there, but with it having been so long since we saw Crawford in against a, a really elite guy and with Canelo sort of on the sidelines and we're not sure what's up. Uh, yeah. There, there's certainly an opening there and maybe, you know, and Inoue is prepared to maybe he'll plant his flag as the number one guy, although he's coming off a slightly shaky performance against uh, Nonito Denaire. So, right. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of wide open there. Uh, maybe uh, Teofimo Lopez is is gonna climb even higher with with one or two more big wins that prove there was nothing fluky about this one. Yeah, and I mean, as we were talking about last week when we were previewing this and and thinking about the different you know scenarios, said that if Lopez did win, that there was just you know the world was gonna be his oyster, and mm-hmm. the fact that he won and he won on ESPN, yeah, so there would have been a lot of eyeballs on him as well. Uh, he's he's got some real potential now to become a really big star in this sport. And around 135 and 140, he has what uh, you know you really need to really make your name. He's got a lot of potential opponents. Yeah. So, uh, and, and quite a lot of them are, are in his stable too. So, yeah, this was, this was the ultimate bet on yourself and it pays yeah. off kind of thing. You know, we heard that he maybe took a little less money than he might've ideally wanted for this fight, especially cause they couldn't have a crowd and so forth. And they did it on ESPN, not pay-per-view. And, uh, I think it's going to be worth it in the long run for him. Yeah. You know what? But, uh, just to quickly touch on that, I, it was right before the fight started. It was one of those where I was thinking, ah, damn, this really needs a crowd. Like the, the level of, of excitement that we were feeling on social right. media and that all of us w- w- were thinking and the build up to it. But I must say, I got so absorbed in the fight, even though it mm-hmm. wasn't a classic. It was such an absorbing fight that um, I forgot about that as it went on. <laughs> I was right with you. Same, same thing. Yeah. The lack of a crowd did not bother me once the opening bell rang. Yeah, yeah. All right. Let's bring on our guest, as I'm very curious to hear his thoughts on Lomachenko Lopez. But we also want to hear from him, of course, about the main event this coming Saturday night on Showtime, when his fighter, Sergei Lipinets, will be in action. So, if you remember, the card was originally scheduled for October 10th, but opponent Kudratilo Abdukakarov had visa issues, so the triple header was delayed by two weeks. Uh, on Thursday, we learned that the visa issues were persisting, so Abdukakarov is out. In steps, uh, Custio Clayton, a 2012 Canadian Olympian who was already deep into training and brings in a record of 18-0 with 12 KOs. So it's Lipinets versus Clayton. And we now welcome to the podcast Sergei Lipinets, head trainer, one of the top trainers in all of boxing and one of the favorite guests of any boxing podcaster, Joe Goosen. <laughs> Joe, welcome back to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. 
Thank you, Karen. I'm really happy to be back. It's been a while, but hey, it's the perfect timing. we got a fight coming up this Saturday, so let's talk about it. Absolutely. Hey, look, before we get into, though, before we get into discussing your guys' fight mm-hmm. coming up, Eric and I were just discussing uh, Teofimo Lopez's win over Vasily Lomachenko. We'd love to get your analysis about it. Um, you know, Lopez won that fight with all those rounds he banked in the first half, and, and we, were, we were talking about that, and I'm curious what you feel as to whether there were things that Lomachenko could have or should have been doing differently in those first six or seven rounds? Or, or was Lopez just so good and quick that Lomachenko was just handcuffed? From the world of Sonic the Hedgehog, a new hero arrives. I am ready. Is there anyone stronger? No. Ha! Tougher? No. Funnier? I do not make jokes. I make warriors. Knuckles, now streaming only on Paramount+. Plus. Yes! Yeah, the, there's a few questions there. I, I would just start off by saying I probably agree more with Andre Ward's scoring. Yeah. Ultimately, I don't know if you're aware of his scoring on that. Right. He, he had it even, uh, right, Joe? He had it even, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, I think he saw what I saw. Um, and I'll, I'll take Andre Ward's opinion and bird's eye view of things just about over anybody. I mean, the guy has got a great eye. He's one of the great great uh, fighters of all time. He's uh, certainly one of the most intelligent fighters in the ring. He knows what he's looking at. Mm-hmm. I, I would say this, that um, there's no doubt that Lopez won the first half of the fight. Now, when I say won it, do I mean every single round? Well, Andre Ward gave Lomachenko the second round, but he gave uh, one, three, four, five, and six to... Uh, Lopez. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's unreasonable because Lomachenko did absolutely nothing in the first six rounds. I, I, I think it's one of these fights he's going to look at and go, what the hell was I thinking? Mm-hmm. Lomachenko. Beca- because after the sixth round, and I'll break down the first half of them, but after the sixth round, what did he start doing? He started in the seventh round on, he started pressing. And then he did what he always, they, then you go, oh, well, that's the guy I've been waiting to see for the first half of the fight. But it didn't, he didn't emerge with that until the second half. I thought he swept 7 through 12, mm-hmm. to tell you the truth. Uh, even though Andre Ward gave the last round to Lopez, I thought Lomachenko on the last round, which I had scored 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 for Lomachenko. I thought he, was, I thought he backed up Lopez. I thought he started doing that magical stuff he does, beating you to the punch, throwing combinations, blocking your punches, countering you with awkward shots, left and right, turning, spinning. Uh, he, he just did uh, what I expected him to do from probably the second or third round on, after a feel-out round or two. Um, so I, I definitely gave Lomachenko the second half of the fight, just as Andre Ward did for the most part. Uh, the first half of the fight, Lomachenko was defensively superlative, but he, he didn't counter. Uh, he was making Lopez miss. Lopez, Lopez was walking him down. Lomachenko was moving. He was blocking, slipping, weaving, parrying. He was doing all the stuff he did, but what he didn't do was normally he started, he would start counterpunching you. When he made you miss by slipping or weaving or parrying, he, he would certainly touch you back. That's one of the things, the qualities that I think is just so tremendous about him is that Nobody plays tag better than Lomachenko. Um, but he didn't do that in the first half of the fight. And I look, I, I don't think that Teofimo had many, you know, 
exciting moments in the first half, but he was the guy pressing the fight. So, you know, when it comes to scoring a professional fight, it's, it's called, you know, effective aggressiveness. That's the, you know, that you're going to get the advantage in scoring there. Well, was it effective? Yeah. To the point that Lomachenko didn't do anything in response offensively. So, uh, his, his, his aggressiveness, his effective aggressiveness, aggressiveness, uh, manifested itself by, um, freezing Lomachenko, uh, to not counterpunch. Mm-hmm. So even though Lomachenko again, wasn't, uh, it was scoring anything that you would go, wow, that's just really amazing stuff. I just think the fact that he was coming forward and trying to force a fight, there was no fight happening in the first half of the uh, fight. If, if Lopez wasn't forcing the issue. So that being said, you got to give him the rounds just on the fact that he was looking to fight and that he was pressuring. In other words, uh, he was aggressive um, and looking for a fight and trying to get into a fight, but Lomachenko wasn't having any of it. And uh, whether he was, you know, uh, Jolden is starting to do some real Lomachenko stuff by his corner. Lomachenko finally started doing it in the seventh round. And I think that then the, the aggressiveness turned uh, around. It was Lomachenko pressing uh, Teofimo. And I thought he was beating him to the punch. I thought he was counterpunching well. I thought he scored the most blows during those rounds. Even if, if Lopez had a few moments, I think uh, she would wipe them out by throwing another combination and just kind of erase whatever good Loman, uh, Lopez may have done in particular rounds in the second half of the fight. But overall, I think Lomachenko was the busier guy and more accurate guy. Mm. Um, and the guy pressuring the guy being effective, uh, uh, effective aggressiveness. I thought that all went to Lomachenko. So, you know, that's, that's pretty much it. I think the first half of the fight was very slow paced very uneventful and um you just had a score for the guy that was trying to look for a fight because nobody was really doing any damage at all yeah uh i mean i I would certainly disagree with your scoring of of the 12th round but all of the rest of, of what you said is pretty much in line with what i was seeing and so it sounds like because you ended up with with an even scorecard and uh it sounds like you're maybe a little less high on teofimo coming out of this than some people are well i mean off this win how good would you say Teofimo Lopez is? Does he look to you like a guy who's going to rise all the way to pound for pound number one, or do you still have your questions about him? Well, look, I, I'm not diminishing anything that Lopez did, and I'll tell you why. He did something that nobody else could do, mm-hmm. and that was to freeze uh, Lomachenko in the first half of the fight. Nobody's ever done that to him before. Right. So obviously Lomachenko felt, uh, felt that he had power, that he had speed, that he had to be very careful before he stepped on the gas, you know, uh, letting uh, Lopez shoot off some steam early. But I think that whole strategy backfired on him. And that, um, you know, if he was effective from 7 through 12, you know, I mean, we, we have a slight difference on the 12th round. But aside from that, we kind of all agree that Lomachenko probably swept the second half of the fight. Now, that being said, um, would he have been more effective or could he have been effective doing that three through six, two through Mm. six? I think he could have been. I I don't know why he didn't capitalize on his great defensive, you know, uh, maneuvers. Um, Mm. Now, 
No, so I, I, I hold Lopez in very high regard that, you know, his reputation, his ring presence, and his, you know, speed and power probably, you know, got more respect from uh, Lomachenko than anybody else he's fought practically, especially later on in the, in the game here. So, no, I, I wouldn't diminish anything Lopez. And, yeah, can Lopez sustain um, uh, the high quality of uh, fighting that he, he puts on out there and athleticism? Sure, he's, he's got all the great qualities. But um, I don't think there's any denying that, you know, he's up against, he was up against one of the great, great, great fighters and athletes and a southpaw to boot makes right. it even more difficult. I think Lopez is, would shine a lot more against the right hander where his mm. methods will work a lot better. You know, against, against the southpaw, it's hard to get your best stuff off in the first place. But then when you're talking about a southpaw like Lomachenko, which just supersedes almost any other, you know, southpaw style piece, it's, it's pretty magical stuff when he gets going. Um, I think Lopez made a great account of himself. Believe you me, I would be more than happy if I were, you know, in, in his, uh, you know, immediate circle right now. <laughs> right. That being said, um, that being said, he's, you know, he, he did not finish strong. I mean, you might say he finished strong in the 12th round, uh, Eric, but, right. um, again, seven through 12, uh, it was all Lomachenko. So when there wasn't much fighting going on, Lopez was doing great. Mm. When the fighting started, Lomachenko did better. Mm. I don't, I don't think that's too much to speak unless you entirely dismiss my uh, observation that Lopez or Lomachenko had a great second half of the fight. So, um, and, and if you, if you agree that he won seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, 11, but not 12, that still says that Lomachenko did better down the stretch. Yeah. The second yeah. half almost split it down the middle. So, I mean, look, there's, there's, there's good and bad with uh, every fight, you know, and in this particular one, I think Loma, I think what Lopez has to look at is why did he start giving up ground mm. and backing up Right when he was, he was freezing, you know, Lomachenko for six rounds by putting pressure on him, being aggressive. I think that hurt him. And I think, you know, by letting Lomachenko turn the tables on him and pressure him and then start doing his thing, he gave up that ground, and that then it turned out the I think it was obvious Lomachenko was the guy doing doing the work there. Yep. And um, he was just beating beating Lopez to the punch, and more punches thrown that landed. It was accurate. So I I think if I'm in Lopez's camp right now, I'm going, hey, look, we, we got to work on this down the stretch stuff. But then again, you're not going to be fighting too many guys <laughs> with the experience <laughs> yeah. and the. the the, the, and the, the talent of, of a Lomachenko normally, you know, right. so you're, you know, a guy like Lopez would probably fare a lot better against a right hander that was, you know, really, really good. Uh, he would still, he would, I think he would perform better down the stretch, but Lomachenko is a horse of a different color. It's right. just really difficult to fight. Right. So I, I got to give Lopez great credit for sweeping the first half of the fight. That's never been done before. Right. Alternately, uh, mm -hmm. last thing I'll say is alternately, yeah. I got to give Lomachenko for you know turning the switch on in the second half of the fight and making it very competitive. But again, I, I don't agree with one nineteen, one hundred nine, or oh, one seventeen, no. <laughs> one fifteen. I, I I just don't agree with it. I don't right. agree with it. So. Right.
Now streaming on Paramount Plus. You ready, Bob? Well, right. Audiences are raving. Bob Marley is electrifying. It's the feel-good movie of the year. You dig? Bob Marley, One Love. Rated PG-13. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. There you have it. That's uh, that's kind of my breakdown. I, I hope <laughs> I didn't embarrass myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that'll be up to our listeners to decide. But no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say so. I agree with all of it again, except except the scoring of, of one round that we disagree on. But but just last quick thing then on on this subject is: w- Would you like to see a, a rematch, Joe? And and do you have an early sense of who you would favor in a rematch? Well, you know, I I don't think there's any doubt who finished more strong. Mm-hmm. And that was Lomachenko. So I, I would probably, unless somehow um, Lopez was able to figure out how to get to Lomachenko earlier, which would, if we were devising a strategy, I'd go, look, you know, we got to get to this guy earlier, even though he was being very elusive. Um, and, uh, then finish strong. So, I mean, that's going to be Lopez. If they do have a rematch, that's going to be Lopez's burden. Right. Uh, with Lomachenko, I would say, look, start earlier. You know, you're so good defensively. If, I doubt it. You're going to run into some stupid shot with your hands down and your chin up. That's not going to happen with Lomo mm. too often. It's happened before. We've seen it, you know, but um, that was when things were going so good for him that he just relaxed his guard and got clipped uh, by well, uh, you'll remind me of who it was when he got dropped by that right hand. Lenares. Yeah, Lenares. Okay. Right. Lenares is a fast, he's a fast sharpshooter himself. But, um, yeah, Lomachenko would have to start earlier, put some, you know, even if he split the first six rounds and then finished as strongly as he did before. I mean, that was, that time I'm just surprised they, they, they held back until the seventh round and stepped on yeah. the gas in the seventh. So that would have to change. So both guys would have to make some adjustments. I think you'd still have a very close competitive fight. But, uh, you know, Lomachenko, based on his great defense, boy, you know, and, and making, you know, Lopez, you know, miss and really struggle to get to him in the first half of the fight, I think if he was just counterpunching a little bit more, he could have stolen a few rounds. Or, mm-hmm. But I don't know what the scoring that went down, if that would have mattered. <laughs> Seriously. He would have had to have won several, of them, you know what I mean? So um, that being said, that's, you know, yeah, a, a, a rematch I think would probably be a better fight for the audience as well because I think both guys know they have to do more early and one of them knows they have to do more late. Right. right. All right, let's talk about... Sergei Lipinets. Um, so he was mm-hmm. supposed to fight Abdukakarov in February. That got pushed to May, then October 10th, and then October 24th. And then you, then it's a whole new opponent. Um, putting the new opponent thing uh-huh. aside for one bit, how challenging is it when you're working towards a, a, you're in camp and you're working towards a very specific peak for October 10th, and then almost at the last minute you're told. Nope, got to reset, got to peak again in another two weeks. How much of a challenge is that? Well, I, look, if you start letting the normal, and I won't say this is a normal procedure where you, the fights are in, they're out, they're up, they're down, they're left, they're right, you know, that it happens to a certain extent, and it happens often enough. And if you've been around long enough, you, you've seen it before, and you learn how to deal with it. So it's just like anything else. Uh, mm-hmm. You've you got to adjust on the fly. Luckily uh, for us, 
the sparring we had ultimately will probably play well for us considering who we're fighting now. With Kukorov, you had Abdul Kukorov, you had a guy that switch hits a little bit. He's a little bit more elusive than um, Clayton. Clayton's a come forward guy. Kukorov can box. He'll switch left and right on you. He'll move. He'll counter punch. He's, he's, he's a slicker guy. Um, but, you know, we were working on dealing with that, with our strategy. Then we were to face a southpaw. They threw up. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, no, there was a southpaw. Um, okay. Oh, God, his name escapes me because he was only, he was only on the radar for like three days. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, get out of L.A. Good fight. <laughs> you guys probably look it up. I'm not a, I'm not a box wreck guy. But, uh, <laughs> okay. you know, the, the bottom line, they, they threw You know, I, just, I go with the flow. So if they go, okay, here's the guy. <laughs> take a look at it. I go, okay, well, that's good. But see, so... I, I, why were we ready for? I was ready for the southpaw when they threw that up second. So it was Abdukakorov, then it was the southpaw. Now the southpaw is okay with me because because Kukorov switched. We were using left-handed and right-handed sparring. See, mm-hmm. so I, I was I wasn't just concentrating on right-handed uh, attack. I was also, you know, looking to attack Kukorov, Abdukakorov. When he was a southpaw, so I luckily I had my bases covered for a southpaw. So when they said southpaw, I go fine. We've been sparring <laughs> against southpaws, right? So that lasted for just a minute. Then Kakorov was back in for October 10th. So now we're we're back to Kakorov, but that's all right because we were training for Kakorov, Abdul Kakorov, and so if it was a southpaw or Abdul Kakorov. We were ready for it. Then they switch up to Custio uh, Clayton. Right. And this is just like two days ago. And, you know, so basically, what, eight eight days out, nine days out, um, when pretty much you're winding down your sparring. Now, if you look at uh, Clayton, he's, you know, he's a strong guy. He's got a fairly good knockout ratio. I think it's uh, 12 out of 18. I think that's his record. Yeah, 12 out of 18. But he also, you know, you got to remember, we were pressing against um, our, our sparring partners when we were training for Kukorov, Abdul Kukorov, and uh, the left-hander that they threw up at us. So, you know, our pressure game was intact. But I also said, look, we want to be a little athletic when needed, if we need it. So I never neglected his rounds of boxing either, where we boxed intelligently. So I, I pretty much covered the gamut. I, I feel good going into this fight that um, we kind of, you know, you, you, you want to be able to do more than one thing if, if the flow changes in a fight. So sometimes you go, wow, we're actually doing better by sitting you know, on the outside a little bit because we're beating them to the punch. Or you find out, man, on the inside, we're the better fighter on the inside because we're throwing more combos and our punches are coming in shorter and our defense is tighter. So either way, I'm going to be comfortable. And you never know when you have to adjust on the fly in a fight. You know, look, you know, things change from moment to moment. That's why you can't just have one plan. You, you know, you got to have a little bit of a backup. So I, I, I think we've covered our bases there. I, that's why I feel very good, very confident. 
going against a really good fighter. This guy's a former Olympian, 2012 team. Um, he's undefeated, so his confidence is sky high. He's got a decent amount of knockout, so he's, he's, he probably believes in his punch. Um, the one thing I will see is he's never fought outside of Canada, to my knowledge. So this, you know, sometimes when you go on the road, it's a little bit different when you go outside your mm-hmm. comfort zone. Um, but other than that, uh, there's really no negatives attached to this guy. He's, he's really good. Um, he's got a solid punch. He's very accurate. Got a good right hand, great left hook to deliver. Yeah, he's good. He's good. Mm-hmm. So I will tell you this. I think it's going to be more exciting um, when you see this fight maybe than a Kokorov fight because both of these guys are aggressive. So um, the fans may get a better action fight, to tell you the truth. Because you know Lipinets is no shrinking violet. He, he likes to fight. Right. And he's not, a, he's not afraid to mix it up at all, neither is this guy. So you got two like-minded guys that will most likely meet in the center of the ring. And uh, you probably won't need much of a referee involved in this fight. Neither, <laughs> neither one of these guys are holders or grabbers, you know. Right. They, they, they like to keep their hands themselves except when they're punching. So uh, I think it's going to be a, a very fan-friendly fight. Uh, next Saturday night on Showtime. I really, really do. Um, and again, the uh, last thing I'll just say about the switching of opponents and stuff like that, it's, it's not uncommon. You hear about it all the time. Uh, you know, I've announced fights on Fox where they've said, oh, uh, you know, uh, we're going to have to use the guy that was on the undercard to fit up for the main event because the main event, uh, you know, uh, got hurt, got injured, or got the flu or whatever. It could be a million things. So it, it it ha- it's happened recently, and it's happened in the past many, many, many times. So you, you can't, you know, pout about it or stomp your feet. You know, you just got to go with the flow. And um, uh, cooler heads prevail uh, when you're talking about this, and you keep the calmness with your fighter and your camp. And, you know, if you're the you know leader of your camp, you can't, you know, show frustration and um you know, weakness in a sense where, you know, well, we don't deserve it. No, it doesn't matter. He's got to fight us. We got to fight them. That's right. all there is to it. We were working hard. You know, we probably wouldn't have changed much anyway in terms of sparring uh, uh, with Custio uh, Clayton. Uh, luckily, the sparring we had fits perfectly uh, into this little puzzle that we're going to have to solve Saturday night. Right. Anyway, I, I had a few uh, questions about Clayton and his style and his quality and all that, and, and you answered them before I even had to ask them. So, uh, so instead, let me ask you, Joe, uh, about sort of bigger picture for Sergey and, and what comes uh, potentially after this if, if he prevails on Saturday. And I know you're not looking past this, but if, if he wins this fight, the well, welterweight division is full of big name fighters. Is there one in particular that you'd like to steer him toward? Well, you know what? When you, when you train guys, you know your fighters' strengths and weaknesses, and presumably you know the strengths and weaknesses of uh, opponents out there. And um, stylistically, who does he match up with when, it, when, it, when we're talking about Spence, Danny Garcia, Keith Thurman, um, Manny Pacquiao, um, who am I missing here, uh, Sean Porter. Right. You know, there's a, there's a few other guys out there, too. But though you were talking about the top you know, four or yep. five guys right there. Right. Um, 
I, look, uh, probably I wouldn't turn down any of them, but I, I think he would match up well with Sean. Mm-hmm. Um, look, you know, I mean, it's no secret. I am not a big fan. I'm a big fan of training southpaws. I'm not a big fan of fighting them unless the guy I'm training has an affinity toward fighting southpaws because they, <laughs> they got their numbers. Some guys have southpaws, but there's not many, you know, uh, most guys, uh, get, no, I don't mind fighting myself, but it, believe me, they, they don't fare well against them. It takes a while to catch up to them. And then you got to hire a special, you know, southpaws to emulate the guy and to find that is not easy. And then, you know, if you spar, you know, if you, if you take a year's worth of sparring, normal sparring a gym, I would say 95% of it is against right-handers. Okay. There's no reason to spar a left, reason to spar left-handers and, if you're preparing for a right-hander. So when the time comes for you to fight a left-hander, you go, Oh, I need to crash course, okay. you know, because I've, you know, I've, I've boxed in the, in the gym. Sorry, you know, 95%. I probably fought only two southpaws in my, you know, 20 fights. You see? So, you know, most of, most of your stuff is adjusted towards right-handers. You throw a left-hander, even if you get good sporting, sometimes it takes a while to get used to the guy in front of you in the ring in a fight. So, you know, you, you can start out with, a, you know, a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a catching up to do uh, when you when you fight good southpaws. Because even mediocre southpaws can make a good fighter look bad just because of the difficulty quotient in fighting something that's a mere opposite image of what you're used to. Right. So that being said, you know, I, I think he matches up well with Sean or or Danny Garcia, I, I think would be a good one. Of course, I'm leaving out the two southpaws, Pacquiao and Spence. They would be the last guys I'd pick, but I, I still think we would do well. But again, that would take uh, a, a, a large effort in preparation to, to get ready for either one of those guys, because they're, they're not just your ordinary southpaws, they're your exceptional southpaws, which makes the, the difficulty quotient go up uh, right. per, precipitously. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but again, if we're just talking about, you know, uh, Keith Thurman, Danny Garcia, Sean Porter, I like those guys. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, at, you know, Spence and, and, and Pacquiao out of the list, of course. But um, I think those three guys first would match up better with them. But um, I, wouldn't turn, I wouldn't turn any of those five down, I can tell you that. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. They all come with, uh, with good money. Yeah, I, I will tell you this. And it may sound strange, but I've often said, if you think about money before you think about a belt, you'll never mm-hmm. get it. Mm-hmm. Either one. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I always say, let's get the belt because the belt will morph into money eventually. So right. I, I'm really about the win. I'm really about the win. Right. Um, because without that, the win and the belt, there's it, it no money. Right. 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 So apart from Sergey, I know you've got, a few other fighters that you're continuing to work with. And um, nowadays, when one of your fighters has a fight, you've got to go into a bubble for several days. It's not just a quick trip. Um, and I'm curious how, if at all, like COVID has complicated your professional life. How, how, does it made it much more challenging to train everyone properly? Not at all. No, not at all. The, 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 the only requirements right now is that they test us you know, a month ahead of time, we've been testing for the past because we thought we we're going to fight uh, October 10th. We started testing, uh, you know, in September. So we, we do the, 
the advanced COVID testing, which is pretty simple. It wasn't uh, intrusive or offensive. Okay. Uh, we just did it. You know, you got to do what you got to do. And then um, when we, so we've been testing all along up until uh, what's today, Saturday. Yeah. We tested probably twice this last past week. You know, for for COVID and for the uh, antibodies. Uh, that said, when we get there Tuesday, everyone will be tested again, and uh, they test you periodically up until the uh, to the fight. Uh, uh, of course, the weigh-in as well that day. Um, and so we're we're going to travel Tuesday. So that's a a day we probably you know you you have to work out in your hotel rooms. That's the problem. Right. But again. You, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and, uh, whatever we, we, we've already planned this out, what we're going to do in the rooms, um, in terms of workouts and what we, you know, we just have to improvise and, um, we'll do that because the other guys got to do it too. Now, if we had to do it and they didn't have to, yeah, then I didn't be able to see about nice. it. But <laughs> the, the bottom line is that, that we're all in the same boat. Mm-hmm. He's got to do it. We got to do it. So he's at the same disadvantage of not being able to run outside in the fresh air where you can, you know, get a better sweat. Um, you can't go to the gym and maybe spar a couple rounds during the week, just light, light sparring three rounds, four rounds, but you know, uh, another guy that knows what your situation is in terms of weight loss and stuff. But I like, I like to throw the ball around in the ring, a little bit, you know, before the game, uh, uh, you know, it's like taking a little batting practice before, you know, a baseball game. They, you know, mm. they take it the night of the fight. Now we wouldn't do it the night of the fight, but I mean, if I have a Saturday fight, it's not unheard that I'll, I'll have my guy do three, four rounds of sparring on a Thursday to, with the right music though. I mean, you gotta have the right guy that knows how to work with a guy that's right. depleted a little bit, but, and it's not a, it's not a bang fest where you try to, you know, hurry. It's just, you know, very light sparring. And, but it keeps your eye sharp, you know, and, uh, so that's out the window. Um, but it is for, for, for our opponent as well. So, you know, the testing, the bubble. Yeah. Can you go to your restaurants that you want to eat and have meals prepared that, you know, your fighter likes and thrives on? No, you're going to be at the behest of the, you know, the hotel and those food they're going to provide, but so is the other guy. So we're both uh, at, at a disadvantage in a sense of what your normal routine might be. So that's it. And it, it really, I, to me, being locked in a hotel room, it, I, I feel like it's unhealthy for me. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, I, I've never been one to sit in a room for four days, uh, but this is what the price you pay for the time we live in. And, um, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. All right. Well, so uh, last thing then, uh, Joe, uh, you and I had a, a really fun uh, off the record conversation last week when we were setting up this interview. Uh, we talked about uh, your dad arresting mafia bosses, uh, your brother catching Tom Seaver on the Mets and your son, uh, Nicholas, working with Adam Sandler. What are the chances Nicholas could somewhat someday direct a movie or, or maybe a Showtime series uh, about the Goosen family? <laughs> Has that idea ever been discussed, uh, a movie about the Goosens? <laughs> uh, I have certainly discussed it with people in the business. That, mm. You know, they 
I've been approached. I mean, but you know, to, getting something like that off the ground is a Herculean effort. Uh, right. It takes a Herculean effort. So uh, that is not beyond, uh, you know, reality. I, I mean, that could happen if I talked to Nick about it. Yeah, we've thrown it back and forth over the years. But, you know, he's really in the comedy business, see? You know, being with Sandler, there's, uh, uh, and working on his projects with them, it's, it's mostly comedy. Um, but I, I think if somebody were able to write a script, he probably, not, my son can write, but he, he would probably be the best person to sit down and write it. Whether he has the time or the inclination to do so is beyond me. But um, I, I, I think one day that might be, I don't know who'd be interested in it, but uh, it, it, it is pretty interesting, and especially the way you know Hollywood can uh, spice things up a little bit, <laughs> right? Make them uh, exactly. a little bit a little bit more exciting than they <laughs> probably were in real life. But I forget I forget what uh, the one famous uh, studio owner said back in the day, and they've been Louis B. Mary goes, movies are like real life. Without the boring parts. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh, and we we definitely discussed it, but not at length, and uh, not for a while. Okay. Mm. But I thank you for thinking that it might be uh, movie worthy. Oh yeah, I, if 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 it happens, I'm tuning in. Absolutely, absolutely. And <laughs> right. and here's the thing: I don't know if people know this. You could actually play a role in there because there's actually a Joe Goose and Hollywood movie reel. Um, you did a, you performed as a referee in a John Favreau movie, but my favorite <laughs> Joe Goosen performance yeah. is in the all-time classically awful 1979 movie The Meat Eater. What can you tell us oh about God. that? How the how the <laughs> hell did you ever find that? Was that that probably came out that probably came out in seventy nine, but I think we filmed that like in seventy six. Oh, okay. Uh yeah, seventy six, seventy seven at the latest, because uh yeah, I just remember the time that it happened. The meat eater I, I always said now remember at that exact same time there was a movie that came out from Universal Studios called Meteors. Okay. Meteors. Meteors. Right. So when people would say, yeah, well, you do any, yeah, I said, oh, it's just in a movie. I said, not to be confused. I said, the movie's name is Meteors. Not to be confused with <laughs> Universal's Meteors. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it was a small role. Um, but you know, I was I, I was doing small stuff back then in the seventies before I got married in seventy six. I was doing little little stuff, but by the time I got married, I had to really make a living. So um, the, that that the, the aspirations of being in the movie business, which I I had done stuff starting maybe in seventy two, bit stuff, um, oh, okay. uncredited stuff, but I, I was getting stuff, going on interviews, and then people that I knew in the movie industry would put me in to do an extra this or an extra that. So yeah, I was doing a lot of that. But again, when I got married, all that came to an end because I had to go out and get a job to bring in money, um, you know, on a regular basis. So <laughs> that, uh, that whole thing, but I can't believe you pulled out meat eaters. <laughs> the a whole movie truly, is a true, a uh, a, a, a truly non-frightening, frightening movie. <laughs> yeah, not not good. Yeah, not good. 
<laughs> no, not good. No, no. That, you know how they say there are B movies? This was a D movie. It was really bad. Really bad. But, hey, listen, you know, I got, I got a few bucks and, uh, you know, I probably went in the gas tank. So There you, you go. go. <laughs> so, what the heck? Like John Candy said to somebody one time, he goes, boy, you really did your homework, didn't you? <laughs> finding finding meat eaters that's right. uh, it's hilarious Kieran, Kieran digs deep for these interviews <laughs> that's right well you ain't kidding you ain't kidding yeah uh, I, 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 now Kieran if you, if Kieran had seen the photos that I sent you no I didn't I didn't forward those to him but uh, but I will uh, as soon as we're, we're oh, off the call there these, these good, are good photos good. Kieran I'll, I'll have to pass them along I was actually testing you. I told you not to send them to anybody. Thank oh. you. <laughs> but now, now I have permission to forward them, but only to Kieran. Is that uh, is that correct? Right. Yeah, you have permission, but they're, they're, okay. they're not for uh, worldwide distribution. Okay. Personal use only. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Out of yeah. context, our listeners are wondering what on earth are in these photographs, and I'll be honest, I am too. <laughs> you'll find you'll find out soon enough, Kieran. We'll we'll leave the we'll leave the listeners in the dark. <laughs> Oh yeah, not, nothing, nothing earth-shattering. Uh, uh, just uh, I'll, for the viewing audience, it's it's uh, one of my father making an arrest on a mafia member back in 1947, and then this is in California, and then the other two because I know Eric is a big Mets fan, right? Uh, Phillies, but baseball in general, yeah. Baseball in general, right? Yeah. That's right. And my, my brother played for the Dodgers. He signed with the Dodgers in 64. So there's a picture I sent him with two Hall of Famers he's in the middle of in his Dodger uniform at, at Vero Beach, uh, Florida, for spring training with Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale. Wow. You know, two Hall of Famers, Koufax, a New Yorker. And then um, the other one was uh, when my brother ended up in 65 with the Mets. He was the, in a Mets uniform there at Shea Stadium in his you know full regalia. Uh, but as I explained to uh, to Eric, Karen, it was um, my brother was the second youngest Met player ever. Uh, Dwight Gooden being the youngest yeah. at 19 years old, so and so months. My brother was the second youngest. Well, he was in the big leagues at 19, which is uh, no small feat. But uh, yeah, those are the three pictures I sent him. So pretty, pretty uneventful, but uh, nostalgically speaking pretty incredible stuff yeah, yeah very cool serious. hey look joe thank mm-hmm. you so much it is always a delight to have you on the show yeah. you're so generous with your time and, and we really really appreciate it and best of luck on saturday my friend listen karen i i appreciate it because you guys really you know your business and it's a business we're all in and i i'll do anything i can to promote our game and uh, the things we love so i appreciate you having me on trust me and eric Thank you again. I had a great conversation the other day with you. That was nice. Off the record. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Always great talking to you, Joe. And like Kieran said, good luck on Saturday. Thank you very much. I hope to speak to you guys soon. All right. So, yeah, thanks again to Joe Goosen for that. He is always uh, so generous with his time, and it's always great to be able to talk to him. One of the nicest guys in the sport. Um, okay. We have covered the Lipinets Clayton fight in some detail with Joe. So Eric and I don't have to go into too much more depth on that. But um, let's at least, you know, do do some analysis here. Um, let me ask you quickly, Eric, what have you seen of Clayton? Uh, what can you tell us about him? And Joe already told us a little bit. And, and how strong a replacement for Abdukakorov do you see him being? 
So answering the last question first, because that's really the crux of the matter. I'm going to sound like a Showtime shill here, I realize, but he looks like an extremely strong late substitute to me. Mm-hmm. I'm not at all sure this is an easier fight for Lipinets than Abduk Korov would have been. Um, I know it's an easier night for Moro and Al and Abner <laughs> and Custer and Parhood. They're all very thankful to not have to say Abdu Kakorov or Abdu Kakarov or whatever pronunciation. They don't have to do that all night, so that's good. Um, for Lipinets, though, I don't know. Uh, this feels like he kind of went from one 50 50 ish fight to a different 50 50 ish fight, or you know, maybe he went from like 53 47 to 55 45, something like that. Um, I like what I see from Clayton, and you know, there isn't a ton of footage available. He's never fought in the U.S. before, only in Canada, never been on American TV before. And his level of opposition has only been so-so. It's not entirely revealing. You know, his his last four fights, he shut out 14-0-3 Stephen Daniel over 12 rounds. He stopped Chop Chop Corley, but Chop Chop Corley was 45 years old. Uh, He outpointed 24-5-2 Johan Perez, and he stopped 21-3 Diego Ramirez in eight rounds. Um, He's been fighting at junior middleweight the last three fights, which is interesting. He figures to be the slightly bigger man in the ring against Lipinets, who was a 140-pounder until moving up to Welter three fights ago. Um, But... Yeah, you know, some of what Joe said, uh, Clayton was an Olympian. You know just from the fact that he was an Olympian that he's at least solid. From what I've seen of him, he's more than solid. He's a stand-up boxer, nothing too awkward or fancy, just well-schooled, fairly fast, good jab, goes to the body, lots of one-twos, keeps his hands high. Um, There's a bit of a shell defense, which Lipinets will be wise to exploit with body shots, I think. Uh, But this guy, Clayton, is no easy mark. Um, Joe talked about some of the Southpaw stuff. He doesn't switch Southpaw like Abdu Kakarov does. Maybe he's less of a puncher slightly than, than Abdu Kakarov. And, uh, you know, Lipinets undoubtedly represents a huge step up for Clayton from anyone he's faced. Um, but all in all, this is a classic case of just cause you've never heard of a guy doesn't mean he yep. can't fight. Custio Clayton is absolutely capable of upsetting Lipinets based on what I've seen of him. Uh, So there are two other fights on this card, uh, both featuring undefeated Showbox alums. And let's start with the co-feature, a scheduled 12-rounder in the 130-pound division. Mayweather Promotions prospect Xavier Martinez, 15-0, 11 KOs. He's looked great and stolen the show twice in blowing out opponents on Showbox. Uh, But he hasn't been tested yet, and he's taken a big step up here against Dominican Southpaw veteran Claudio Marrero, who's 24-4 with 17 KOs and who lost a very close decision to Tug Nyambayar last year. That gives you a sense of the level he's at. Uh, And in the last three years, besides that close loss to Nambiar, Marrero has actually beaten two undefeated fighters, Carlos Zambrano, who was 26-0 at the time, and Jorge Lara, who was 29-0-2. And And Marrero didn't just beat them, he stopped them both in the first round. So we know he's dangerous. The question is, how dangerous? How serious a step up is this for the 22-year-old Martinez, Kieran? And what are you looking to see from Martinez that would tell you he's the real deal. Yeah, this is a real step up. Um, uh, you know, Martinez hasn't faced anyone close to the caliber of Marrero, nor has he faced anyone close to the caliber of the guys that Marrero has faced. Um, look, on the one hand, you could look at Marrero and think, mm, he's two and three in his last five. 
Um, you know, and two of those three losses came inside the distance. And you might think, oh, has he found his level or has he peaked? Um, but against that, his opponent's record in those five fights was 138, three and seven. Hmm. Uh, that's high quality stuff to be going two and three against. By my calculation, the entire record of everyone that Martinez has faced as a pro uh, is 126, 89 and five. So hmm. just in these last five fights, you know, Marrero has, has been up against some you know, really high quality opposition. So... You know, what I would want to see for Martinez, given that it is a very substantial step up, just a win. He doesn't okay. have to look spectacular here. He doesn't have to score a knockout. He doesn't have to dominate. If he wins, then he shows that he's more than somebody who can just roll over the kind of guys he's met so far. He'll prove that he can get the beating of someone who's been contesting fights with top 10 guys. Uh, now, that said, the nature of that win will obviously tell us more and more about just how good he is and about what kind of level he may be able to achieve. If, if, he, if he scrapes through, gets a close decision, we'll say, okay, wow, there's a lot of potential here, but good learning experience, well done. If he is somehow able to look composed and impressive and even possibly dominant against Marrero, that will show that perhaps... He's already on, on, on another level that what we've seen from him on Showbox and elsewhere isn't just a mirage, that he really is as good as it looks as if he might be. Um, as I mentioned, the one thing he might be keeping an eye on in two of those three losses, oddly not against Tognayambo, who is probably the best guy he's fought, he was stopped. Um, and Martinez might just have an eye on that and think, well, okay, that's the marker and that's the statement that I, that I want to make. But honestly, a win against this guy, I think, would be an achievement in and of itself. Uh, in the opening bout, a 10-rounder in the 140-pound class, uh, we get another look at Malik Hawkins, who fought once on Showbox, but that was way back in 2017, when he made quick work of fellow unbeaten Carlos Soto closing his eye and forcing a stoppage in just two rounds. Uh, Hawkins is now 18-0 with 11 KOs, and he's in tough as well against Puerto Rico's Subrea Matias, 15-1 uh, with 15 KOs. He's clearly a puncher, but he's coming off his first defeat, a close upset decision to Petros Ananian on the Fury Wilder 2 undercard. Hawkins has an interesting story, both going way back and more recently. Uh, going way back, he was schoolmates with Javante Davis in Baltimore from second grade through high school. More recently... He very nearly died earlier this year. Uh, he was supposed to fight on Showbox in February, but a week before the fight, he fell ill with a kidney disorder, and doctors told him if he hadn't sought medical attention when he did, there was a 95% chance he wouldn't have survived. Mm. Uh, now he's apparently completely healthy and ready to fight. So, do you see someone as the A-side in this fight, Eric? Or is this one of those pieces of matchmaking where we actually don't quite know what we have with either fighter, and it looks like it might actually be a toss-up on paper. Yeah, uh, here I go shilling again, but uh, <laughs> there really is no A-side here. Um, I don't want to give away my pick coming up, but it doesn't give it away to say I had a tough time making the pick. Yeah. Um, this is potentially a really fun matchup. Uh, these are both offensive-minded guys, which is a nice way of saying they're both defensively flawed fighters. Hawkins is lean and long and 
He doesn't take advantage of that very often. He takes a lot more punches than he needs to. He's saying for this fight, he's going to fight smart and use his height and reach, but I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, He looked really bad last December against Darwin Price. He was getting shut out through four rounds before he pretty much got bailed out by Price suffering a fluke knee injury. Hawkins is a high upside prospect. Uh, you know, he's sparred with the likes of Terrence Crawford and Boots Ennis, so we know he can handle himself in there. But his performances, his pro fights, they've been kind of spotty. Uh, and the same can be said of Matias, who is extremely aggressive, digs hard to the body, has a lot of tools, and lost a bit of a tortoise and the hare kind of fight last time out against Ananian. Ananian was the slow and steady guy and Matias really faded late in the fight. He got hurt and almost dropped in the final round, lost a close decision. And his promoter, Juan Orengo said he didn't take the fight seriously and didn't train hard enough. And I believe it based on what I saw. So really interesting matchup here of talented fighters, fun fighters, but flawed fighters. And uh, it's really hard to guess which one will take the step forward. And, uh, and that leads us to our official predictions. I have a 47 to 42 lead, possibly the biggest lead in Showtime Boxing <laughs> Podcast history. Uh, the Matt Raskin and Mulvaney historians out there can check us on that. Uh, but I'm up five points, and it's my turn to go first. And uh, we'll go in the reverse of the order in which we previewed the fights uh, and instead go in the order in that they will be airing on Showtime. We'll start with Hawkins, Matias, and... I think I like what I see in Matias more. Uh, He's flawed. He's coming off a loss. But I'll say this for him. He knows who he is in the ring. I'm not sure Hawkins knows who he is and will do what it takes to maximize his potential. He says he'll box and use his height. I can see him doing that for a round or two. But I think before long, this turns into a trench war. And that, I think, slightly favors Matias. I would not be surprised in the least if we see both guys get hurt in this fight. But if it's the style of fight I expect it to be, then I don't see Hawkins holding up for all 10 rounds. I'm saying Matias KO8. So I'm having, I was having a hard time with this pick. Um, you know, not to be a show myself. I mean, I agree with, with what you're saying about this being a hard fight to call. Uh, and as you said, neither man looked really impressive in his last outing. Um, there's an X factor here that we haven't talked about um, in that Matias actually hasn't looked great in his last couple fights. And right before that, of course, was a fight in which he beat Maxim Dadashev so badly that Dadashev died shortly afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we saw the other week with Charles Conwell, uh, who's now had, I think, two, feet since, two fights since beating Patrick Day, some boxers can rebound just, just fine after that kind of thing. A lot, some do not. You know, a, a Joe Goosen, of course, one of his very first charges, Gabriel Ruelas, was never quite the same man in the ring after his favorite win over Jimmy Garcia. And maybe I'm just projecting here and trying to add a narrative. Um, I, I kind of wonder, you know, seeing his fight the last time out, yeah, like you said, maybe he didn't train properly for it. Uh, the time before that, he beat like a guy with, I think, 20 losses or something to that effect. It's possible that maybe he's lost that certain something. Um it doesn't mean that he's not going to win again, um, but you know, will he be able to dig deep into that well? So absent that question mark, I would have picked him here, I think. Um, Hawkins has shown flashes of promise. 
he has heavy hands, but he hasn't that often impressed. I thought your comment just now about like he doesn't quite know who he is in the ring, I think is an excellent, excellent observation. Thank you. But partly because I need to make up five points, <laughs> and there's no point my... Staying five points behind is, or being six points behind is no, you know, not going to do me any better than at least swinging for the fences a bit. And also because I'm just, it is, I think, a legitimately hard fight to score. And Matias, who looked sensational a few fights ago, doesn't at the moment. I will say that in a fight in which both guys could end up getting hurt, Hawkins is the one with the stoppage win late. Actually, in the final round, in the 10th. So, uh, I think... Uh, then we've got, like, Martinez Marrero. And I, I also found this quite difficult. Uh, I, I like Marrero as a fighter. Um, he's compact. He's balanced. Um, he fights sort of in close to mid-range. He's always busy. Forces his opponents to be busy. I'm not certain that that's necessarily the best fighting style for him, though. In, in that, yeah, he stays in the pocket, but as he does does that he keeps his hands just a little low and and in his losses to kick galahad and jesus rojas he kept getting touched and not really adapting to it um you know galahad didn't seem to be necessarily hitting him hard but he did keep hitting him and as the fight went on those touches started to have more and more impact as galahad turned the screw and then you know suddenly and it's the same thing against rojas it looked as if there was a blow that came out of nowhere to f finish the fight but it came at the end of like several rounds of getting tagged uh and not adapting to it i think he does that a little bit too much um i don't think that's going to serve him very well against someone like martinez who i do think is probably as good as he has appeared to be in in what we've seen of him so far i really am quite high on xavier martinez I think that this fight might unfold quite similarly to uh, Marrero's fight with Rojas in that, you know, you could see Marrero being quite effective early on but and, and banking some rounds. But Martinez, I think, is just going to find something. He's going to find a way through. He's going to start touching him. He's going to start tagging him. Bit by bit, ever so slightly, Marrero is going to slow down a wee bit. And then suddenly around round seven and eight, Martinez will start to break through. And I think he'll actually come up with a even though i said he only needs to win i think he'll come up with an impressive stoppage win in round nine all right um so i suppose if i was really playing uh optimal game theory i would just uh, you would just match make me. the exact same pick but uh, i won't do that i'll mix it up a, a little bit i'm not going extremely different but i'll go a little different um you know there's some some deja vu with martinez in terms of bringing it back to our conversation last week about Brandon Lee and how you need to try to get him mm -hmm. rounds. Um, I'm not sure quite what to think of Martinez because he's been blowing guys out. Um, I really don't think he'll be able to just blow Marrero out. He, I'm almost certain he's getting some rounds here. This is an enormous step up, but I'll trust what my eyes tell me about Martinez, which is that he is a world-class prospect. I think he'll prevail, but he'll really have to work for it. I'm really on the fence about whether he can get the knockout or it'll last the distance. And actually, the fact that it's scheduled for 12, that makes me think Marrero is even more of a live underdog. You know, who knows how Martinez right. will handle the late rounds if it gets there. Boy, this is a tough call. I could absolutely see Marrero taking his O. I, I wouldn't be mm -hmm. shocked if he did. But uh, I will go with Martinez. But uh, I'll give you an opportunity to make up a little ground here by picking a 
decision fight, go in the distance. I'll say unanimous decision for Martinez. Uh, he'll win in a fight where he gets tested quite a bit, I think. And uh, now on to the main event. And again, not an easy call at all here. No. Um, I was going to make Lipinets the slight favorite against Abduk Korov. I think he's the slight favorite here, too. He's a relentless fighter. He has the vicious wide left hook. Uh, I can see him taking what Clayton dishes out better than Clayton takes what he dishes out. Um, I think the fact that Clayton is a, is a more predictable fighter, more textbook, I think that plays to Lipinets' advantage. This looks like to me like another entertaining style matchup, another close fight on this card. Clayton has to see this as an enormous opportunity. I figure he's going to come in and fight his ass off. Um, but I, I think Lipinets just has a little more to offer. Um, but I'm going to say Lipinets is not able to get him out of there. I feel like this one's going to go the distance. Lipinets by close unanimous decision, somewhere in the range of 116-112, maybe maybe 116-111 with a knockdown, some, somewhere in that range. But I'm taking Lipinets' unanimous decision. Yeah, and here we do agree. Um, you know, I, I'll confess, I hadn't heard of this guy before before yeah, we had to research him. I, um but based on the video I've seen, I agree with you. He's he's not bad at all. Um, he seems to have some very sound fundamentals. He's compact. He's got that tight defense that you talked about. Works behind a decent jab. Has a nice right hand. The one thing that I thought from looking at him is I didn't feel that there was anything special about him, Clayton. Um, he didn't seem super fast. He didn't have great footwork. He didn't seem to have concussive one-punch power. He looks like he's the kind of guy who grinds his his foes down generally and, and, and then sets them up for, for often like a right hand stoppage. Um, you know, so it didn't look as if he has that thing to sort of separate that does he, does he have the fourth, fifth, sixth gears that he might need against a, a fairly relentless guy like Lipinets. So I don't think he's going to have enough to beat Lipinets, but he looks so he looks big too. You mentioned him about being at 154. Um, in the past, he's solid. Eh? He's got big, thick arms. He's got a thick torso. He's a big, tough guy. And I think he's going to be terribly hard to break down. Uh, I don't think he's quite going to have what it takes to take him over the line to win. But I think Sergei Lipinets is going to know at the end of it that he's been in a heck of a fight. And I do agree with you. I think he's going to go about 12 rounds and about 116, 112 is actually a pretty valid score. Uh, and I do think it'll be unanimous. Okay. All right, there is one other notable fight card to look ahead to this weekend. Uh, thankfully, it doesn't conflict with the Showtime card because it's on Friday, the 23rd, in Mexico City on DAZN. Sort of an unofficial entrant in HBO's Superfly series. Uh, in the <laughs> nominal main event, Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez takes on Israel Gonzalez in what probably should be considered the main event. Juan Francisco Estrada takes on Carlos Cuadras in a rematch of a fight that actually was one of those super fly fights. Uh, and we also have Julio Cesar Martinez versus Maximino Flores. What are you looking forward to most here, Kieran? And do you expect that if they both win, we're on the road to a Chocolatito Estrada rematch nearly a decade in the making? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, all these fights promise action, but I guess in terms of the actual matchup, I'm especially interested in seeing that Estrada Quadras rematch. Uh, as I mentioned when we first talked about this a few weeks back, I was ringside for their first fight, which, like you said, was actually part of the Superfly broadcast. It was a really high-quality, close-run affair. Um, I'm intrigued also by Gonzalez against 
Gonzalez, uh, because it will give us, I think, a pretty good indicator of where exactly Chocolatito stands uh, and whether his win over Caliafai was one of those one-off, one final hurrah kind of a deal, or whether he just had a particular superiority over Yafai, or whether it was a real sign that there's plenty left in that tank. Because um, Yafai has a win over Israel Gonzalez, uh, as does Joan Ankahas. So that's the level beyond which Israel Gonzalez has not been able to go. So if Chocolatito still does indeed have some Chocolatito left in him, as it appeared that he did uh, after that last win, um, he should be able to overcome uh, his namesake and ideally inside the distance. So I'm especially interested in that fight for what it will tell us about where Chocolatito is. And absolutely, if both guys win, it has to be a fight that's going to happen. And who would have thought uh, just a couple of years ago that we would once again be in a position where we'd be looking at the possibility of an Estrada Chocolatito (laughs) rematch in which conceivably we might not know who was going to win. So, um, yeah, just uh, a fine indicator of the way in which fortunes can rise and fall. Uh, There is not a ton of outside the ring news to cover this week. Uh, But certainly the biggest item is what's happening with Fury Wilder 3, which we thought was coming in December, possibly in front of fans at the football stadium in Las Vegas. But just before we recorded our podcast last week, we were starting to see reports that Fury was pulling out. He wasn't confident that the fight was going to get finalized within a reasonable amount, reasonable time frame. Um, So he made plans to fight someone else probably far lower caliber in the UK on December 5th, uh, with the aim to then fight Anthony Joshua in 2021. The Wilder side insists this fight is still happening, um, but Fury and his camp uh, argue that the window by which they were obligated to to make this third fight has passed, and they're free to do something else. Um, so we will see how that unfolds. Uh, but meanwhile, in the midst of all of this, Joshua versus Kubrat Pulev has been confirmed for December 12th in London. So, what do you make of all of that? Do you think that Fury Wilder 3 is definitely off? And here's the interesting question. Is that actually even a bad thing for boxing fans if it is? So, I I can't say it's definitely off. Um, I'm pretty confident it won't happen in December. I'd say there remains a faint chance that Top Rank and PBC will quickly find a January date and convince Fury to ditch December 5th and do the third fight with Wilder. Um, but like, I'm not sure how much it matters that Shelly Finkel is saying the fight is still on. It, it right. takes two to tango, as they say. Um, so if, if Fury isn't interested, then the fight isn't on. Uh, so let's say it doesn't happen. You know, Fury fights some sea level heavyweight on December 5th. Nothing to get excited about there. But if it gets us closer to Fury versus Joshua, ideally in front of a crowd in the UK, maybe in the spring, we'll see if that's possible. But if that can be the next fight for both guys, if Joshua beats Pulev, that's the best possible thing for boxing fans. You know, I'm not opposed to Fury Wilder 3 at all, but Fury Joshua is the bigger and more intriguing fight right now. And you know who really benefits from Fury Wilder 3 being off? Deontay Wilder. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and not that he can't beat Fury, but he'd clearly be an underdog. And even without fighting him, he's positioned himself to be able to say, hey, I wanted the fight. I believe I can even the score. Fury ran away from me. Uh, and then Deontay can 
take his time and, and get another win or two under his belt, work on some new things and, and so forth. If he fought Fury again immediately and it went the way the second fight did, I don't want to say Wilder would be done, but you know, he might be done, especially if he takes another physical beating like the last time. So this decision by Fury to go in a different direction, if that's how it goes, it might just work out for everyone. No. Um, one piece of news here that you don't even need to comment on, Kieran. I'm not sure I want to comment on it. Uh, I'll just note that on the November 27th zone show headlined by the Daniel Jacobs Gabrizato fight that we recently railed against, the co-feature has been announced as Demetrius Andrade versus Dusty Hernandez Harrison. Uh, not not counting cards headlined by YouTube personalities, uh, this might be the worst fight card of the year, and uh, the Thanksgiving turkey jokes pretty much write themselves. Um, so, yeah. Uh, last thing this week, uh, a terribly sad piece of news. Ricardo Jimenez, longtime publicist for Top Rank, died last week at age 64, a couple of days after suffering a stroke. Jimenez was known to many in the industry as Top Rank's bilingual PR guy who could get you on the phone with any Spanish-speaking fighter or trainer and, and do all the translation for you. But I actually knew him before he went to work for Top Rank as fairly early in my tenure as an editor at The Ring magazine in the late 90s. Ricardo was working as a reporter for the Spanish-language newspaper La Opinion, and he met Nigel Collins at a West Coast fight, and Ricardo became a freelancer for us, writing all sorts of articles that benefited from him being able to get interviews with the Spanish-speaking boxers that none of our other writers could get. Ricardo was an outstanding writer and went on to be an outstanding publicist and was one of those truly nice guys who nobody ever had a bad word to say about. I know you knew him for many years also, Kieran. This is a tough one for those of us in the boxing industry, huh? Oh, it really is. Um, yeah, Ricardo is someone who I assume few outside of the industry knew about at all, at least not until all the tributes that have been flooding through social media. And he was never somebody to advertise his presence either. He, he wasn't a voluble person. He rarely seemed to be especially expressive at all, actually. He always had this slightly lugubrious look about him, and, and he rarely said much. Um, you know, until after a while, if he was comfortable with you, he'd open up a little bit and chat. Often, most of our conversations would be over coffee at some cafe in some hotel lobby during some fight week somewhere in some some place in the world. And one of the great things about Ricardo and why he was such a delight was to work with was because you'd say something like, hey, is there any chance I can talk to, you know, X or Y? And he'd look at you and he'd not say very much. And he'd sort of sit there for a bit and finish his coffee. And then he'd just wander off and you think did he hear me is he going to get this done and then all of a sudden he'd show up with the fighter he wanted uh and then like you said he'd do all the translation and all without any fuss at all yeah. uh he was just such a gentle soul and 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 a constant presence and he was one of those people those quiet people without whom this business just couldn't work mm. and anytime this business loses one of the good guys. It suffers disproportionately because there just aren't enough of them to go around. And Ricardo Jimenez was definitely one of the good guys. Yep. All right. That will do it for another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Our thanks again to Joe Goosen 
for joining us. Uh, we will be back next week with not one, not two, but three planned podcasts, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, as we hit Davis Santa Cruz pay-per-view fight week from all angles. And talking of Davis Santa Cruz, be sure to check out part two of All Access, airing this Friday at 8.30 p.m. on Showtime. And if you missed part one, fear not, as it is now available on the Showtime Sports YouTube channel. Until next week, thanks for listening, be safe, be kind, and be welcome.